Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. I really want to thank True Digital Park for letting me record here today. This is a pretty amazing place. True Digital Park is Southeast Asia's largest startup campus, right in the heart of Bangkok. It's an incredible facility, actually, with everything a startup would need to grow and flourish. Basically, there's a complete startup ecosystem under one roof, including support and services from government agencies like DIPA and the National Innovation Agency, all the way to funding from some of the most sophisticated investors and venture capitalists in the region, excuse me, like Taurus Ventures, Beacon Ventures, Sing Ventures, and Ad Ventures. You got to come and see this place to believe it. It's, it's pretty cool here, actually. I'm joined today on the podcast by Vikram Bharati. Vikram is the founder of Tribe Theory and someone I've known for more than a few years. Vikram, how are you doing today? Hi, Michael. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I'm um, uh, really excited to catch up with you. Yeah, it's been a while. We were joking, actually, before we started recording. It's been maybe too long since the last time you and I talked to each other. Why don't we give the listeners a little bit of background on you, kind of where you're from, where you went to school, just like how you kind of got to here, and then we'll talk about why. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, let's see, where do I start? I guess I should start from when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where were you born anyway? Um, yeah, I was born in India. Okay. And uh, my my father is Indian and my mother is Burmese. Um, okay. But I was, uh, I was born in the north of India, uh, northeast of India. Uh, it's a place called Nagaland, which actually it's a place that not many people know of. No. But it's 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 a part of India that borders Myanmar, and so oh, that makes sense, right? If you're looking at the map of India, there's like this little thing on the right hand side, which is sort of like a little piece of India that's kind of broken off from the rest. I'm looking now. Go ahead. <laughs> right, right, and and so there's like there's a bunch of states there that are um, very very different than the rest of India. So they are much more Southeast Asian in nature because all the people there are from different parts of uh, Southeast Asia as well as China. Um, so everyone looks different. Everyone, you know, the culture is very different. The food is very different and the, the religions are very different. And so it's very much uh, Southeast Asian uh, by nature. Uh, but it is part of India. And so um, my, my mother is from, you know, that part of the world. Uh, wow. She's uh, ethnically a Naga, which is a tribe in the north of Myanmar. That is so cool. Yeah, it's, it's actually really, really interesting. I, I go back there every year and uh, it's, it's such a fascinating place because I feel it's one of those places that's probably one of the most unknown places and there's not many of those in the world left no today. there are many left like i'm looking at the map right now and i didn't even realize that that was there to be fair but I, even if i had looked at it i didn't realize that that was part of india but it kind of like yeah it's weird that's really cool actually and it looks gorgeous there yeah it's it's a beautiful part of india because it's up in the mountains yeah. uh, there's a lot of nature it rains a lot there's a lot of um greenery you know wildlife and um, yeah, so it's really, really fascinating place. And, and the, the, the folks who occupy Nagaland, uh, that, that state where I was born, uh, are mostly from, the, I mean, I suppose the, the, the word would be like Indochina. Um, but the, the, like my mother is actually from a tribe called the Naga tribe, 
which is a tribe from the north of Myanmar. And uh, I, I don't know if you read up on sort of what's happening in Myanmar at the, at the, uh, at the moment, but um, there are, you know, a lot of tribes in the north that are causing a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I suppose um, I, I have some heritage to, the, uh, to that group of people. But it's, it's very interesting because if you actually Google Naga tribe and look at the images, you know, this is a tribe of folks that are really, really tribal in the sense that, you know, they, they still have, uh, you know, the image yeah, of looking. Yeah. bones and spears and um, uh, very tribal sort of tattoos and outfits. Um, the Naga tribe is that, um, you know, that look and feel, which is really uh, bizarre. For when people think of India, they don't think that, you know, this does exist, um, but um there's a lot of this sort of cultural heritage from from a long time ago. Wow. Blown away, actually. Anyway, so you were born there? I was I was born there. Yeah. And and, and the reason. So what happened was my dad was a government. Um, he worked for the Indian government. Got it. And uh, th there's a there's a administration in the Indian government called the Indian Administrative Services, or IAS, which apparently I've, I've recently found out is a sort of an elite group of uh, Indian bureaucrats, and, and and you know they're they're civil servants, right? And uh, so my father was part of that administration, and he was stationed uh, in Nagaland. This is we're talking in the 60s. Yeah. And so at that at that time, you know, there was no that part of the world was very disconnected from mainstream India. And um, so he was stationed there and his role or responsibility was to integrate that part of India with New Delhi uh, in terms of um, economically and culturally and socially sort of connecting the two pieces together. And so he was there and he met my mom and um, and. That's how I was born there. <laughs> this is like a classic love story. Do you know what I mean? Where like the guy from New Delhi or whatever goes out to Nagaland and just like falls in love with one of the local ladies. That's such a great story. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, my father was a very interesting character or, or is an interesting character. Uh, he was at that time very sort of rebellious. Uh, he was a young person that just graduated from university and he was a very adventurous and rebellious type of person he actually had these notions of you know going and joining the communist party in china he used to listen to mao's you know mao on on radio all the Got time <laughs> and so he was a very very sort of different type of uh, i would I suppose a uh, person he's from you know he was born in rajasthan and so right. those types of folks are generally of a certain persuasion i suppose but he was very different and so he ended up there and and spent his whole entire career as a, as a government servant uh, in that part of the world. Yeah, and let's just point out as well that Nagaland is about 2,500, more like 2,300 kilometers away from New Delhi. But also in the 60s, like I don't think people today really understand how different not just India was, but the whole world was just a completely different and kind of disconnected place. You know, like we take it, we take for granted today that like, you know, I'm sitting in Bangkok and you're sitting in Singapore, I'm presuming, and we can have a conversation for free over like, you know, TCP IP. But like in the old days, this was not possible. And just connecting to people 2000 kilometers away from you was almost impossible. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the technology didn't really exist except for, I suppose, dial-up phone. But but even in that part of, of right. the world, Nagaland, I mean, you're in the mountains. You know, you don't really even have potentially a telephone connection. And right. at the time that my dad went up there, I mean, it was everything was done by letters. He, I remember <laughs> he tells me stories of how he would write letters to to New Delhi to like say, hey, we need we need reinforcements, you know, and it was a letter. <laughs> and the, the likelihood of that letter getting to New Delhi was very slim, right? Because somebody had to take it there. <laughs> sure, but also the reinforcements getting there, you know, it wasn't like they were coming tomorrow, regardless. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's um, you know, I, I love hearing these stories from my dad because it's. It seems like a, a completely a different uh, world, but it wasn't that long ago, to be honest, right? It's 60s, 70s, uh, not that long ago. No, I mean, look, I was born in 1965. It wasn't that long ago. And I just think sometimes, like, it's just so amazing to me. You know, your mother was born in Nagaland, a place that back in the 60s and 70s was kind of disconnected from the rest of India, not to mention the rest of the world. And yet here you are sitting in the center of like one of the most sophisticated economies in the world and you know using technology to build businesses and stuff i mean it's just amazing to me how one generation can be so different from the previous generation if that makes any sense yeah yeah i suppose these days every decade you know there's such massive changes happening uh, who knows what the world's going to look like in 20 years from now, right? <laughs> we don't know at all, right? And I guess that's really the point. But it's just so cool when I think about, you know, I think we all have these stories. I'm, pro I'm a little bit older than you. Well, a lot older than you, really, right? But like similar stories. You know, my grandfather was from Russia. So he literally walked across the continent to get to Massachusetts, right? Got on a boat, the coast, went to the United States. And then just everything in my life is different because of the struggle that he went through and you know, maybe every generation doesn't necessarily struggle, but just that transformation from, you know, some small town in Russia to me sitting in Bangkok using tech to do stuff would just blow his mind if he were still alive to know it. Yeah. Just amazes me sometimes. Yeah. It's, I, I, I was actually having this conversation with my wife this morning because um, now with, with Tribe Theory, you know, that we're, we're building this business, which is now a global business and, and we have locations in lots of different countries and we're expanding to you know Europe and and looking at expanding to the US and and I'm sitting in my home on a computer and managing a lot of the workflow and managing a lot of this expansion from you know my phone basically exactly so, <laughs> it's it is it is pretty I was actually telling her that this is kind of magic you know I'm I <laughs> I'm on my phone and I'm I'm actually doing real work and it's it's communication it's um and you can actually build global businesses that are uh, you know tribe theory is a physical business and and we can build that remotely in in a way uh, which which I think even five years ago would not have been possible. No way. And let's let's get back to that in a second. But I want to know like what you were doing before you were doing tribe theory, right? I go back and look at some of this stuff and. You kind of popped into the startup scene six years ago. I don't remember exactly when it was, right? I had moved to Southeast Asia in March of 2015. Okay, so, not long ago. Uh, so, so I suppose it's been four years. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's about four years. Let's see. So I was born in Nagaland. And then um, Nagaland was a very dangerous place at the time. Uh, there was a lot of civil unrest. So, you know, Nagaland is a place that 
still even to today there's a lot of secessionist sort of movements ah. are trying to take the piece of india away from you know the mainstream india because they feel that that, 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 that they don't belong uh in in mainstream india and so there was a lot of um, sort of civil uh, civil unrest, um, especially when my dad moved there. And at the time we were born and uh, we're growing up there. And so my dad sent us away uh, to boarding school uh, in, in, you know, uh, in the middle of India. So near New Delhi type uh, around that area. So my brothers and I, my sister, we didn't grow up in Nagaland, um, but we were transported into a different world in mainstream India and sort of grew up in, in, in a boarding school in uh, near New Delhi. Um, so that's that's how we that's how I got away from Nagaland uh, and then um, moved to the U.S. Uh, when I was, you know, a teenager and um, then studied there. And and that's how I ended up sort of being in the U.S. and you know, grew up in the U.S. most of my adult life. Right. Which explains your accent, right? I mean, you sound very American to me, which is why I always ask, like, where you're from. You just sound really American to me. I guess living in California will do that to you. Yeah, I, 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 I suppose so. I, I suppose so. But, you know, interestingly, speaking of uh, accents, I'm, I'm fascinated by accents, by the way. So am I. So am I. And, and I, I have a lot of friends, Indian friends, who... Uh, also grew up in the U.S. and and probably lived in the U.S. longer than I did, but have a very strong Indian accent. Which in and of itself is kind of cool too, right? I mean, yeah. So I always wonder, like, what, 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 why is it that I have a different accent? My brother has a different accent, and my friends have different accents. And and I think I think the the answer to that is of course like very there's no simple answer to it there's a lot of factors but um I think in my case I never really had an Indian accent even though I was born in India and and sort of raised uh in in India in my early early years and I think it's because you know the school I went to uh I was you know, my teachers were Americans right, we had right, a lot right. of American class uh classmates and stuff and so I, I think that was probably you know, one of the reasons why the accents changed at, at, at that age. Yeah, so for me, it was pretty interesting. My family is from Boston. I don't know if you know what a Boston accent sounds like, but it's very distinctive, right? Right, right. And I moved away from Boston when I was nine years old. And as a nine-year-old kid, I sounded like, you know, a kid from South Boston. Just a deep Bostonian accent, like, you know, like Goodwill Hunting style Boston accent. Right, right. And, and I moved to New Jersey, which is another place with kind of a distinctive accent, and they just kind of made fun of it out of me. And then from New Jersey to Connecticut, which has to be sort of the most generic spoken English in the United States. And then when I was done, and I went to college in Connecticut as well, so I have this sort of very flat English style, I believe. That's what people tell me, at least. And then I moved to Japan for 20-something years, right? I've been in Asia for 30 years, so most of the English that I hear has no impact on my English speaking. So the way I talk hasn't really changed in like 30 years, right? Because I've had no other sort of impact or influences on my language. It's been really weird because I don't listen to a lot of other people speaking English, right? I'm in Thailand or I was in Japan or whatever. Yeah. It's just kind of funny. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I think there's um, a lot you can learn about culture and history, I suppose, through accents, right? 
Yeah, for sure. I think it's so interesting. And I don't think any of them are good or bad, right? I don't make a value judgment about it, but I just love the way like language sounds, if that makes sense. Right. What's what's your what's your favorite favorite sounding language? Yeah, so to me it's a combination between French and Italian. And I guess that's um just sort of the pseudo European influence or this sort of pseudo European influence that uh you know Americans have where they're just so enamored of Europe. But I studied French when I was a kid and I've been to Italy a couple of times and those languages to me are just beautiful. Right. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. Right. Anyway, that so that's my that's my choice. How about you? So I think French is a very beautiful language. Uh I think Italian is um also beautiful, but I think it has it's much more um uh I would say uh what's the word I'm looking for? Uh um, raw. It's raw, you know what I mean? Yeah, like it, and, it feels, and dramatic. Yeah, it, it, right. It feels oh, it feels yeah, it feels more um yeah, not romantic. What is that word you're thinking of? There's a more of a power behind it, like a an energy. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but yeah, I don't disagree with you actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm recently I've been very fascinated by um, a language called Frisian, uh, which is a Dutch sort of a subset subset of uh, a Dutch the uh, the Dutch language. So in the north of Holland, uh, there's a there's a province called Friesland. Uh, which is which is part of uh, of the of Holland or, or of the of the Netherlands, but uh, it's a it's a it's a language that is sort of a dialect or it's just a separate language. Um, my, my wife is Frisian. We have a young daughter now, and and we have named her. We, we've given her a Frisian name, and so yeah, and so Frisian is a very interesting language because it's very different than Dutch. I'm fascinated by Frisian because they have such. They have such amazing sayings, you know, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, I love this. Yeah. And it comes from, I mean, I think the Frisians were, uh, I suppose, like Vikings, you know, in, in, in the heyday. Uh, and a lot of them were farmers. And so uh, th- there's a lot of sayings that are used in modern day context, but have very sort of agricultural roots. Uh, and, and but they're so relevant. You know, and so tell me one. Tell me one. So things like there's one saying that's that is um, you're not made out of sugar, and you know I can't say it in Frisian because I don't speak Frisian. But right. but um, and what what that means is so at any time you're uh, you're complaining about something or you feel you don't um, something is hard uh, or you can't do something. The, you know the saying is you're not made out of sugar, as in you're not like it's not going to rain you're not going to melt right yeah i love it i'd love to hear it in dutch right or in frisian because it's got to sound so cool right right <laughs> so so and, and frisian is is a language that i suppose it's not a mainstream language only <laughs> you i think yeah <laughs> i think there's only something like um a few hundred thousand people in the world who who actually speak the language probably yeah, and and it's 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 um, I, I suppose because I'm very close to the language in terms of because my wife is Frisian, she speaks it to our daughter. I I I, I think it's 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 a language that sounds very um, it, it's it, it's not a it's not like German that has sort of coarse uh, phonetics, but it's it's a very sort of soothing kind of language. Yeah. Wow, let me tell you let me tell you one of my favorite um, sort of sayings that I heard from Thailand recently. 
and I'm probably going to get it a little bit wrong, and it's not in Thai either, but I just, I love those sayings, right? Like, you're not made out of sugar. And I'll tell you what, that's probably going to be the title of this podcast is You're Not Made Out of Sugar, just because I love it so much. No, I love it so much. Um, but it's also emblematic of startup life, too, which we'll get back to in a second. It's like, just keep going, yeah, and stop moaning. This right. is not meant to be easy. Like, if it was easy to do all this stuff, everybody would be doing it and nobody would get paid. Um but the saying that I heard a couple of like a week ago from this friend of mine was you don't have to ride an elephant to catch a butterfly. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, just think about it. If you're, you're riding an elephant to catch a butterfly, it's complete overkill, right? In other words, you don't need a like to put it in more modern terms, like you don't need a nuclear bomb to kill a mosquito. It's just not necessary. But if you want to catch the butterfly, there's a much easier way to do it than getting up on an elephant, trotting around, and finding that butterfly. Why not just like stay on the ground, get a net, and kind of casually catch the butterfly? The idea, I think, of the saying is that you know there's probably a much easier way and a less overkill way of doing things than just like getting up there on the elephant and trying to run after a butterfly. And it also, it's not easy. It looks like it's easy, but it's not, right? Because the butterfly moves way faster than the elephant as well. Right. So, like, just figure out what the right angle is and then do it that way as opposed to overkill. Right, right. I like that. I like that. I liked it a lot. Anyway, so tell me more about tribe theory. And the other thing, the other thing you've kind of brought up, maybe indirectly, is... Why tribe, right? In other words, does that sort of hark back to Nagaland or is that just a coincidence? Yeah, I, I, I think that's most definitely a coincidence. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, the idea of people banding together to build a culture, uh, yeah. or people banding together to accomplish something. And, and, and you know, this, this, this idea of, of a tribe, it's, it's very, very, very deep. Um, and, and it's sort of like it encapsulates humanity uh, in, 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 in an essence, because like how have humans become the most, you know, the, the, the most prevalent species in the world or, or, or the species that has, you know, taken over the world and, and, and is in every corner of the, of the planet? How has that happened? Um, and so I, I think the idea of a tribe can be very, very uh, localized, but yeah. I, I that the idea of it is also very broad, which is people coming together uh, and helping each other out to accomplish something such as the growth of the human species has come about because we're all social animals in that sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, we can get into, get into sort of like why uh, the name tribe theory, um, but I suppose it is, it has, I guess, uh, um, some, some connection to my past, but I, I think it's a coincidence really. So let me ask you this. Let's let's define what tribe theory is and why you thought this was a good idea and kind of how you even got started, right? Like most people that we know that exist sort of in this tech space don't build physical businesses, maybe because they don't look like they're sexy, but also because they're way harder, right? Like anything that's hard is harder to build, I think, than a software business. Now, why did you decide to go this route, particularly coming from the perch where you were sitting, which was sitting inside sort of a venture capital company that was investing mostly in sort of software style businesses. Yeah. Does that make sense? Right. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think the, the journey of tribe theory began, uh, I would say in 2014. Okay. And this is when, um, I was, uh, you know, I was a banker and I was 
working in Los Angeles and I had been with this with this institution for seven years. You know, it was really fascinating for me. And so my, my career started in banking during the time that the last financial crisis happened. Right. So this uh, sort of uh, 2006 is sort of my my first job was selling mortgage backed securities. Uh, and so this is right before the <laughs> Wow. Yeah, for me, it was very fascinating because I, I think when, when the car breaks down and you're looking at the hood um, the inside the engine, that's when you sort of really learn how, you know, the machine works. Yeah. And, and so I, I felt it was a good time for me to really get my career going because I learned so much, you know, like, well, how does money move? How does uh, how is the system working together, et cetera? So that's that that's uh, that's how my professional career had started, um, and then so I'd been doing that for about seven years, and uh, it was it was um, I felt I had learned a lot, uh, but I felt I'd come to a point where I didn't really feel like I was learning too much new stuff. You know, I was getting more responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera, but there was nothing like I wasn't learning anything substantially new. Um, it was always a variation of the same thing. Right. Um, I, look, you know this. I did the same thing, right? So I was working at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, and I just, you know, I stayed a lot longer than you did, and I'm not proud of it, right? I'm actually super happy for guys and gals that do what you do, which is just like, you know what? I've stopped learning new stuff. I'm out of here, and I'm going to go build something. Or you actually went and traveled for a while, yeah? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, like for me, I a, a lot of times, you know, I hear my my friends say, "Oh, well, I was in the corporate world and I, I hated it, and and so I left." But for me, actually, I really liked it. I I really enjoyed my professional career because, you know, when you work for these big companies such as you have done, you get exposed to so much more than your average yeah. person. Uh, you know, the deals you work on. You know, you're working with governments. You're working with you know large corporations, and so. You get exposed to really environments and situations that are pretty fascinating. You know, if you're if you're working in a bond deal, uh, or or you know you're helping large corporations move money from one place to the, I mean, there's there's a lot of really really interesting situations and environments that you, that you get exposed to. And so for me, I actually really really enjoyed it. But um, the 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 I suppose the catalyst or the reason why I decided to sort of leave that was, you know, one day I realized that I had lost my own personal identity. Correct. I know exactly that feeling. It's so funny you say that. Like I say this to people all the time. They're like, you seem like a different person, they say to me, than I met like six or seven years ago. And I'm like, yeah, because working at those places like destroyed my soul. And now I'm slowly but surely getting it back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you go to these parties and you go to social environments and people ask you, hey, what do you do? And, and so then your identity then becomes what you do for a living. Correct. And especially when you work for sort of these large organizations that may seem to be, you know, very um, aspirational, yeah. then the identity becomes even stronger connection with this company, right? And so then your identity becomes, hey, I am, you know, I am my title or I am this job or I am this organization, uh, which is, which is, I'm not saying it's a, it's a bad thing, but for me, I just felt that I had lost my personal identity because who I was as a person is very different than 
than you know being a banker, right? right. And so, 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 so the realization was like, wow, like I really need to like really bring back my own identity. And 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 the funny thing was, I didn't really know what my own identity was. Like, who was I? You know, who were you, right? Right. Because like for all these years, you you become part of an institution. And so you become so institutionalized that in a way you sort of lose that connection with the self. Um, and so so that was a that was a realization that I had. And so I wanted to there was only one thing I really wanted to do at that time, um, which was I just wanted to go travel the world. I, I, I took a six months uh, sort of sabbatical which then turned into two years. And I just went backpacking around the world, uh, traveled through South America and you know Europe and then Asia and ended up sort of backpacking for two years to 50 plus countries. Wow. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, you know, two, two of the best years of my life uh, because it was very adventurous. During that time, I was traveling solo. And so I was staying in, I was hosteling. I was staying in a lot of these sort of backpacker hostels across the world. In fact, I, I used to go work in these hostels. You know, I, I'd, I'd bartend or I'd, I'd do housekeeping for, for free accommodation. And uh, that's sort of how I was able to finance my my trip around the world. And uh, so that's when I first got exposed to uh, to hosteling or backpacking or sort of traveling on, on, on a shoestring, you know, hitchhiking and couch surfing. And um, it, it really like changed my my perception of the world, my view of the world, and because sure. so much more interaction with with you know with people from all around the world. So that's that that was sort of like the the the, the beginning of the idea for Tribe Theory was that that sort of that that moment when I decided to go traveling. So this is really interesting to me, right? And I said this to you, I think maybe when we were offline, but like my image of what a hostel was like and I think the reality of what a hostel is like are two completely different things like I was actually scared to go in and maybe that's just the sort of bourgeois person in me saying I don't want to stay in a room with a bunch of other people but my experience was actually really different I was in Singapore for a couple of weeks so I didn't feel like spending 300 bucks a night on a hotel and I was there last minute so I found a hostel to stay in I actually wanted to stay in tribe theory but it was full <laughs> Like, I'm not kidding. I called from the airport and they were like, we're full. And I'm like, I know Vikram. They were like, I don't care. It's full. I'm like, oh, no. I'm not, no, it was great. And they were super polite. That's not the point. It was just funny to me that like I really wanted to try and stay, but I couldn't. Anyway, so I found another place to stay and I had the most amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah. Like the most amazing experience. I literally like I would sit in the common area. Um, I did some podcasting when I was there and I met, you know, this German group of people who were coming to learn about social innovation and social programs in Singapore. They were all university students. It was just so cool. And then I met somebody from the Thai embassy there who was switching jobs and moving to New York. And I just met some pretty incredible people. I met this woman from the Philippines who was working at, I want to say, Price Waterhouse. But if I get that wrong, please excuse me if you're listening. Just some pretty incredible people. I didn't want to leave. Right, right. Yeah, yeah and, and this, is, this is the experience that I had. Because I had never been, like, I never stayed in a hostel until I went traveling, right, in 2014. Right, right, right. right. The first hostel I'd ever stayed in was, I think, I think it was Argentina or, like, in, somewhere in Chile. And uh, that was my first experience. And, and it was a, a sort of a big aha moment for me because I was traveling alone. 
And, right. and, but this was, I was meeting all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life and from all around the world. And, you know, I, 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 I would make friends with these people, these fellow travelers, and we would travel together. So I would be, let's say, in Lima, and I'd be staying at this hostel, and, and I would meet a bunch of, say, Danish people there. And then we would end up, like, traveling together to, you know, to Bolivia together. And so this sort of, like, traveling um, companionship that happened was a, was a very, very positive experience for me. And, and, and you know, I realized, wow, there's like, all the travelers coming through these spaces are very like-minded because they're all very social, they're on a budget, but they're adventurous and they're, you know, they want to see the world and they want to experience all sorts of new places. And so just sort of being around that group of people and traveling together just makes your experience so much more meaningful. And it's way better than staying in a hotel where you're kind of secluded in your own room. You don't sort of interact with anybody. And God forbid, like in the lobby of, you know, even a three-star or four-star hotel, you say, hey, how you doing? You want to have a drink? People are like, get away from me. Right, right. <laughs> right. But there's no – and this gets back to this concept you were talking about earlier about the tribe, right? There's right. no social connectivity built into those places. There's social exclusivity built in and there's sort of separation built in. I'm going to go back to my room, Right. Don't bother me kind of thing. But inside of a inside of a well-run hostel, it's more just like you're here to interact with other people that are kind of, and I'm starting to understand this better now, that are in your tribe, right? Like that's why you're there and that's why you end up traveling with those people or working with those people or becoming friends with those people because you're there for the same reason kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, when I was sort of backpacking. And I, I remember, uh, you know, I was in Morocco and I met a bunch of, you know, folks from Europe and we ended up like, you know, hitchhiking across Morocco. And then we hopped, hopped over together to, <clears throat> to South of Spain and then ended up like traveling together all the way up to, uh, to Norway. And so it's just, it's just, it was such a great way to right. uh, socialize, meet people, exchange ideas and, and but but for me, so then what so then sort of how I ended up uh, starting tribe theory was, you know, part of that trap, part of that two years of traveling is um, I spent some time in Bangkok. And I think that's when ah. that's how we met. Um, this is in uh, 2015. And um, I was fascinated by Thailand. So part I had never been to Thailand. And um, when I was traveling, I, you know, I spent time in Thailand, I was in Bangkok and I spent time in the North and the South and I, I loved everything about Thailand. I loved the culture, the people, the food, the history. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it's really, really cool. I mean, it's, it's such a fascinating, um, you know, society and, and culture. And so I, I wanted to spend uh, more time in Bangkok. Uh, or in Thailand, and and really really dive into the culture, and the, um, and and learn about the culture. And so I ended up spending some time in in Bangkok and uh, working on different projects. Uh, after that, I so during that journey of travel, I also ended up meeting my wife, my my wife now, and uh, we have a daughter. And I met her traveling. And I love it. <laughs> I didn't know that actually. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Actually, so I was. I met her in um, in Bangkok. I think I was at some sort of um, conference or whatnot, and uh, she was there on a project, and she was living in Singapore. 
Um, and you know, she's, she'd been here for a couple of years. She had, she had moved here from, from, uh, Amsterdam, uh, to go to INSEAD, which is like the business school here. And, um, then after that, she, she stayed, um, she, she really liked Singapore. And so she was, she, uh, joined McKinsey and she was here living for a couple of years and she was doing projects, you know, across the region. And um, that's how uh, she was in a project in Bangkok, and I met her, and and it was uh, we did long distance for a while, and uh, at some point one of us had to make a move, and so I decided to move to Singapore, and that's how I, I ended up here. Wow, what a great story! I see some parallels. There's always some kind of family parallel, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I you know I had no I had no um, I had no intentions of ever moving sure. to Singapore. I'm sure. Uh, the, the the reason was because of her and I absolutely uh, love living here now and we've, I've been here for three years now. It's been a very good time, interesting journey so far. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible and it's pretty incredible what you've accomplished with um, Tribe Theory. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, you know, the, the, the story of me sort of backpacking and staying in hostels and and sort of experiencing that that backpacking culture was the beginning of me understanding the power of uh, really platforms. And so Tribe Theory at the end of the day is a platform for people to do a lot of various different things on this platform. So what, what I mean by that is, you know, just like when I was traveling, I would meet all these amazing, interesting people in a physical location but there was a lot of commonalities. And so right. that helped me uh, socialize, engage, travel, do all these various different things. And so I, I feel that there's a lot of uh, potential of taking a, a, you know, a subset of people who are trying to do certain things and putting them in small spaces and thus creating sort of these network effects uh, the very crude way of looking at tribe theory is that we're an accommodation business, but our goal with, uh, with tribe theory is to become a global physical platform where we have these hostels all around the world, which are nodes in a big network. Uh, and then we're building this technology layer on top of it, which is then going to enable people to communicate, connect, work on projects together, get funding, find talent, and, and um, sort of create these network effects, right? And so that, that is the long-term vision uh, of Tribe Theory. But at the moment, we're at you know, version 0. 0.00001, where we're, <laughs> we're laying down the sort of physical infrastructure uh, of putting spaces in, in various different cities, targeting sort of like this new generation of business travelers uh, you know, we call them the, the millennial business travelers, but it could be sort of anyone that's of a new um, mindset, which is not your suit and tie kind of business traveler, but a business traveler that's looking for a lot more connectivity. Uh, and I think we can build a brand that becomes a platform to enable all of these people around the world to build their projects. So I don't know if that sort of explains what we're trying to do. Yeah, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this, but this is actually a really interesting idea, right? So 
I believe in a lot of cases that building what I call sort of Trojan horse businesses are some of the best ways to build them. Because while you're doing that, nobody else that's watching you kind of understands it. And by the time you're done building it, it's too late for anybody to sort of replicate it at scale. But what it sounds to me like you're doing is building all these physical spaces, right? Almost for like the new style of work life that people are building for themselves. In other words, I don't necessarily live in Phnom Penh or Yangon or Manila or Taipei or, you know, we're in Berlin. But I will be there at some point and some of my teammates there because I'm working in a distributed business or, you know, in a decentralized business. And it still means that, you know, I bet that you're going to build a part of the platform where I can check into Tribe Theory in Singapore or check in somewhere else in the world and all my data is still there. All my logins are still there. And maybe even some of my project people are still there. It just makes traveling more seamless, but it also makes building my business more seamless. So you're kind of building an online platform and an offline platform at the same time like do i have this right am i going down the right street or, or am i am i just like feeling around in the dark yeah no no i, I think you're you're most definitely hitting a lot of um of the good components of tribe theory but i i like the word distributed um systems that you mentioned and so there's a lot of analogies on how to build sort of networks yeah and so with tribe theory it we're trying to build a distributed network and what i mean by that is each node, which is a hostel, right, is an aggregator of people, talent, skills, ideas. Yeah. And so we want to aggregate people and ideas and skills in small nodes all over the world. And so what I mean by that is if you look at the very basic component of a hostel, a hostel is a space that attracts people from all around the world who come and stay there for a very short amount of time. Right, yep. three days, four days, uh, some one night, some a week, etc. But because it's a very short-term accommodation, which is affordable, it attracts high volume, high velocity of people from all around the world. So I'll give you an example: the hostel in Singapore, which is a very, very small hostel. It's only thirty sort of pods or thirty capsules, and they're all shared dorms. Right? It's only thirty. Last year, in 2018, we had over 4,000 travelers from more than 80 countries come and stay with us. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. So you're talking about aggregating talent, aggregating ideas from around the world. So hostel is basically just an aggregator. And so if you look at a lot of the digital accommodation businesses, like, let's say, all your rooms or red, uh, red doors, red, yep. Zen rooms, <clears throat> these are sort of marketing channels or they're a digital layer on top of existing physical spaces, right? Yep, yep. And, and the MO there is to aggregate inventory so that you can resell that inventory at a margin. So that's, that's, how, that's how the business model works. But for me, we're not interested in aggregating inventory. We're very much interested in aggregating people. Wow, that's a completely di it's a completely different take on this. But sorry, go ahead. Really interesting. Yeah. So we have no intentions of aggregating as much inventory, physical inventory as as possible. We have no interest in that because the business is very different. So the goal is to aggregate people in small spaces all around the world, thus creating a massive network right. and then building tons of businesses on top of that. Yeah, what a great what a great idea! Like this is almost a sneaky little venture capital business as well. Well, so 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 I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because 
right now we're in the process of launching a couple of businesses. Um, one is an academy. So we, uh, we're launching our first uh, academy in, uh, in May, which is essentially going to be skills and education, right? Yeah. So it's going to be Tribe Theory Academy, which we're launching soon. Uh, we're launching Tribe Theory Talent, which is matching people uh, and skills to projects and ideas. But you know why that can, can I just jump in for a second? Because one of the things that the, one of the biggest problems in hiring, right? And I believe, you know, a lot of these companies that are doing hiring, these kind of newfangled places say, we'll use AI, we'll use machine learning, we'll do the matching and all this other stuff, which is great, right? That's a good filtering mechanism. But in the end, and I was having this discussion with somebody last night, and again, tell me if I'm going down the wrong street. But I think most hiring literally happens at the human to human interaction space. Like, I think that lady's going to make a great partner for this business. I want to hire her. But what you're doing is, remember, you said you're not aggregating spaces. You're aggregating people. And by doing that, just like your traveling thing, it's almost a metaphor for hiring. Hey, you know what? I'm going to be in Berlin, and I'm building this business there. Do you want to work with me? I'll meet you at Tribe Theory to do – do you know what I mean? Like it's the perfect way because the interview happens naturally and organically as opposed to through some AI mechanism which just matches my resume with your hashtags, if that makes sense. Yeah. You're, I mean you're spot on. And you know when I look at the hiring business or, or the talent business, yeah, I really feel, Michael, in the last five years, there really hasn't been a substantial – disruption in the nope. recruiting business not at all right? but if, all this all this crap gets funded though and i don't understand why sorry go ahead but like every every um new type of recruiting model is just a small variation of the last one which is it's all digital yeah and it's they all say hey we have this algorithm we have this scalable ai machine learning thing but it's like there's there's not been a real disruption i feel in recruiting and so I look at that space and I go, how can I disrupt the recruiting business? And I feel that it will have to be done in a very, very different way, which is not purely tech. I agree. To have like um, physical spaces and a component of, um, and you know, this is an inspiration almost in a way that I've gotten from the U.S. Army. So if you, I mean, you're, you're American, you know, in the U.S., the U.S. Army has recruiting centers all yep. over the country. Yep. Right? And it's a physical space where it is a place to recruit new recruits and sort of build a community and a camaraderie around physical spaces, which then translates into uh, lots of sort of recruits. And so I, I, I feel that with Tribe Theory, one of the components we can, we can uh, sort of disrupt is the recruiting business uh, because we're attracting a certain type of person from a very specific subset of mindset and skills that are coming through our spaces. And so we have, I feel that physical component is a very interesting way to look at disrupting the talent space. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you a tagline, right? Like the tribe does the filtering. That's the AI, right? Right. Right. That is the coolest thing I've heard in years about this business, this type of business. And so that, I mean, this is one component. And so like, we want to build complete ecosystems on top of the spaces. And uh, one of the things you mentioned, sort of venture capital, and, and um, you know, we're launching Tribe Theory Angels, which is we're creating our own angel network. Yeah. Because, you know, let's say in Singapore, and I'm just using an example of one space, but imagine we have 50 spaces around the world, right? In Singapore alone, every single day, 
there are amazing ideas that are coming through. Right. You know, young, young folks in their early 20s or mid-20s with an MVP or with an idea, they're very talented and they're looking for funding for their ideas, right? And we're not chasing them. They're coming to us because it's a space for startups, freelancers, entrepreneurs, digital nomads, sort of young working professionals. So we don't have to go chase ideas. Ideas are all coming to us and they're staying with us. Right. And the reverse to me is like the worst type of, I hate pitching competitions, right? Where you get three minutes to stand on stage or five minutes and then a six minute Q&A and then some idiot gets to vote on you. Again, this is just like the hiring process. If I'm sitting in a hostel, right, having a conversation on the phone about what my business is with my partner who's in Berlin, right, if I'm in Singapore, and then somebody overhears that conversation, which they naturally do, and then they're like, wait a second, you're building this thing? What is that all about? Can I right. learn more about it? And again, I'm not pitching to you. You just heard me doing my job. Right. Right. And then I come over and I say, wait a second. You know what? I, I, I'm not so great at this, but I know somebody who might be interested in, can you talk to my friend Lisa about this? And you make that introduction. And that's what the node and the network and the power of all that connectivity actually ends up being, I think. This is actually a really cool idea. Yeah. And, and so, so I, I think the, the, if you break down the various different possibilities, uh, components of what Tribe Theory can really be is, you know, we said earlier, we want, it to be, we want this to be a platform. And another yeah. component, which I think is very interesting, which we have just launched, is Tribe Theory Media. And so you're in the media space. You, you understand, you know, um, sort of um, storytelling. Yeah, and so think about of the 4,000 people that have stayed with us in Singapore, there are at least 1,000 really, really, really interesting stories. And these stories are not stories we're chasing. And so I just feel if we're a platform and we can tell the stories of, you know, these ideas, tell the stories of these people then I think that is very powerful because not only are we building a brand for ourselves by telling the stories, but we're also enabling these young ideas to get a voice, right? And to get uh, sort of like your podcast, right? Your podcast is a way for me to tell my story, but then it's also a way for me to tell my story to lots of people. Correct. Uh, And so, you know, you had to come seek me out. Like, because you knew me, you said, hey, Vikram. Yeah, would you do this for me? Right. But imagine if in a hostel, you sat in a hostel, Michael, and every day you just said, hey, who's here? What, what's your story? Let's talk on the air. Right? So you don't have to go chase stories. No, so I've, so I've done the same thing, and it's a, it's a great idea, right? Um, that's why I sit in True Digital Park. Same thing. I told you before, you know, we started recording, there are a thousand seats in this building, most of them filled by startups, government agencies and stuff like that. There's a story here every day and I don't have to go look for it, right? So in the same way that you're building media around the stories that filter through your tribe theory locations globally, remember you said you're not building inventory in the physical space, you're building just enough inventory so that the people that come through remain interesting and targeted. I do the same thing in these physical spaces too. I think it's a great idea, actually. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And, and what's what's been pretty amazing is uh, it has a lot of challenges, as you know, because it's a sure. physical business, so it's very operationally heavy. But and so there's a lot of challenges. But I, you know, I that the magic that's happening in these spaces is so phenomenal because 
where else can you sit in a place and you meet a startup from Kazakhstan and you meet a startup from Mongolia and from Ecuador and from Brazil and from Berlin and from Sydney? I mean, it's, you know, I, I sort of like, I say that tribe theory is not a co-living space, right? Because a co-living space by definition is for people who live in a specific city. Right. So let's say if there's a co-living business in Singapore, generally it's targeted for people who live in Singapore or want to live in Singapore for a, you know, three months, four months, six months, etc. Right. Theory is for people who are not from Singapore. You know, it, our location in Bali is not for people who are from Indonesia. It's for people who are not from that city. And so right. thus aggregating talent from all around the world there is some magic to that, which I think it's worth sort of exploring and, and experimenting with. Yeah. So just tell me, how are you going to build all these businesses concurrently? That's hard. Like, are you hiring staff? Are you raising more money to build this stuff? And the other question to me always, right, because of the way I look at what I do, are you also trying to raise money through this sort of angel network that you have that says, you will take a stake in some of the businesses. Like you said, you're not seeking them out. They're coming to stay in your physical locations, right? And they're doing their work there. And almost by definition, you get to understand like how good they are by how busy they are. It's almost like the AWS model, right? Like Amazon can give away free server space to you and they can run a venture business because they can watch your server usage grow and say, that's organic. I'm going to invest in that business. You can feel the same thing in a physical space, I'm presuming, by just like how many meetings that lady's taking and how busy she is and all that other kind of stuff. Would you invest in businesses too? As you know, before, so before I was building Tribe Theory, I was um, running you know, a venture capital fund here in Singapore. Yep. So I, I think, I don't know, Michael, if you know the, the Reapra guys. Or the I do. Uh, yeah. So I, when I moved here from Thailand, um, I was working at Reapra and I was working with Mora Fujisan and Matsuda-san. Yep. And they were, they were just absolutely amazing. Incredible being. people. Yeah. And, um, you know, they gave, they gave me a shot to, to invest in and, and, and startups. And which I, I was such an amazing experience. Um, and so I was running around Asia looking for very early stage founders who I thought would be very interesting people to invest in. And so during that time, you know, I was involved in making 10 investments, uh, around 10 investments, uh, you know, in India and in Indonesia and Malaysia. I was running around chasing these companies. And I just, you know, a part of me said, like, why am I running around chasing these ideas? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and so, so now when it's I said so, it, it's crazy. so inefficient. I've said this so many times. It's the it's the dumbest way to do it. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and and it's like when when someone comes and does a pitch to you, like you you know them for two seconds or like you know two minutes, and you don't really understand what this person is like. But I think in a physical space, like. Tribe theory, where people are staying for a couple of days, I think you can you can build a friendship. You can build. You can understand what the personalities are like. Yeah, I know and you can. Yep. So there could be a lot more depth to really getting to know an idea, getting to know the person behind it. And so I think there there is something there, um, I, which needs to be experimented in. And so so you know when I was working at Reapra and and with uh, you know these amazing folks. I pitched them the idea that, hey, why don't we build a chain of hostels so that all of these people will come and stay there? 
instead of me running around chasing them, right? <laughs> what a great idea. And I thought they would laugh at it, but they said, hey, that's not a bad idea. Why don't you put up a prototype, you know? Here's a check, put up a prototype. And so the one in Singapore is a prototype that we have built uh, through the you know, uh, support of, uh, of Reapra. Uh, and, and so that was a prototype. And we, we said, look, let's, let's experiment. Let's see what happens. And so you know, we built the prototype very quickly, a very, uh, very lean, very quick, and um, watched and saw that, wow, like, something is happening here. There's some Where magic is it? on Anxiang Road at the end of Anxiang Road. So at Club Street, Anxiang Road. And that's a great location. Super location. Yeah. And, um, and so, so that was the prototype that we built. And, and we, you know, we had no idea what, what would be the result. But, um, you know, clearly there was something that's working. And so, we, you know, we expanded. And now I I'm, I'm firmly believe that there is a potential and a possibility to, here to really, really build something that can be very meaningful but also can be a really good business. And, 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 and the reason I'm saying that is because I look at sort of these workspace businesses, right? I look at, right. let's say, co-working spaces, and I look at these sort of, uh, and, and you know, in these spaces, it's very hard for the model to work because it's essentially just a normal real estate business, right? It's like yep. price times square footage. That's it, though, with no right. other innovation inside of it, right? I mean, that's the WeWork problem that they're going to run into is that, like, what's the innovation there? You're just a real estate business. Right. And so, so, so for me, you know, I, since I started Tribe Theory, I, I've been going to some of these hotel conferences. Right, right, right. Except because I, I am not very new to hospitality and I want to learn the business and how, how to make this successful. And one, one thing I've noticed is in hospitality business, you know, you, you look at a room and there's two price points in the room. There is the bed that you sell, and then there's the food and the entertainment that you sell, right? Yep. Those, are the, those are the two um, rep sources of revenue. But then I, I'm looking at square footage very differently with Tribe Theory, where I say, here's a room. Here's four people staying in this room. In this room, there's skills, talents, ideas, fundable opportunities, stories that we can tell. I mean, every aspect of humanity and ambition and desire is in this room right so so just looking at square footage much more holistically i think is a is a good foundation to maybe potentially build lots of businesses on top of that yeah how come no one's done that before how come nobody's seen that potential inside that square footage just to use the terminology that you're using right in other words why has there been this sort of arm's length relationship between people that are staying in your place, so using your physical space, and you, meaning the person who owns that physical space, you've almost separated yourself, like in a really thick wall, with a really thick wall going, you do your thing behind that closed door, I don't really care what it is, and, and while you're here, you can come to the bar and come to the food service place, but, but don't interact with the other people, don't bother them, kind of thing. Yeah, I, so I think it's because... You know, we live in a, as in the beginning of the conversation, we talked about how the world's changing so dramatically. Yeah. And, and I feel that this type of idea, like tribe theory, is probably only possible today because people are traveling differently. People are traveling more frequently. People are more independent. People are more entrepreneurial. So the world has changed to the point where I think an idea like this is now possible. 
I'm not sure if tribe theory 10 years ago would have been a great idea, but now everyone has a laptop. Everyone is a freelancer. Everyone, so there's, the world has changed to the point where that square footage looks very different than it did even five years ago. Sure. Sure. And this gets back to, this gets back to that part of the conversation we're having at the beginning where you talked about like, I'm running this business off my phone. Right. 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 Exactly. And so potentially one of the responses to your question of why haven't other people looked at, looked at a square footage differently is because I think the square footage configuration has changed in recent times. Clearly. Yeah. And so this is what I am very, very curious to explore and build a business around because I, I see the potential of creating networks using both physical and digital solutions, but using the physical space as an aggregator of people. But from a business model perspective, I want every single, every single physical space, every single hostel to pay for itself through hospitality services, sure. right? Yeah. People are paying for their bed, people are paying for their food and coffee and laundry services, which then pays for rent, utilities, salaries of that space, right? So the hospitality part, the accommodation business part pays for the foundation of that business. But then on top of that, you build a massive network and that's where the real value creation happens. Right. And in a way, this is the smartest way to do it, right? A lot of businesses like we've talked about already will do this loss leading stuff, right? So I'll rent out space to you at a loss and hopefully you'll buy more Coca-Cola kind of thing, right? So they're just hoping that at scale, other businesses will make money. And, and part of what you're saying is these physical spaces are going to pay for themselves and make a little bit of a profit. Now, I could make way more profit on it potentially. And that's another question we haven't addressed yet, Right. But instead of doing that, I'd want these physical places, these physical spaces to pay for themselves, get people in here, aggregate that talent, idea, businesses, all of these things you talked about, and then build that platform, both from a tech perspective, but also from an intellectual capital perspective and all the other things we discussed on top of it. And that's where the scale creates massive value. Is that right? That, that, that is right. Um, uh, yeah, that was very well said. And, and I would say that I think the beauty of what we're trying to do is that the physical spaces, right, the, the foundational stuff is not a very expensive proposition. No. Like we're not putting up a massive hotel, right? We're putting up very small hostels where the expectations of comfort and expectations of is very, very low, right? And so putting up a hostel business is generally much, much, much more cost effective than say putting up a hotel. Um, and so I think the beauty here is that we can build this network of very aspirational people through spaces that require very little capex and very little sort of maintenance. Yeah. Cause that's always my question is how do you maintain the space? In other words, on day one, the physical space is always in its best shape, right? But on day 4,000, so 10 years out, what does it look like and how do you maintain that? And then in the end, you have to knock it down and stuff. It's just other questions that I have about the physical spaces. But you're right. If you build it in a very particular way, maintaining it is actually very easy. So maintaining like the Mandarin Oriental is impossible because over time it just degrades. But if you start at a certain level, maintaining that level is actually not as hard. So a great idea. Yeah. And, and also, I think in terms of the people that we're aggregating, 
we're really aggregating very aspirational people, but they are at the bottom of the pyramid. And, this, and what I mean by that is uh, they're in the bottom of the pyramid of budget constraints. So we're not, we know we're aggregating people in the pre-seed, seed stage, right? Right. And so and if you look at the, the sort of budget pyramid, they're in the bottom of that pyramid, right? And but in the bottom of the pyramid is where there is volume and velocity. Yeah, exactly. Because they're just going to keep coming, 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 coming. And they're going to keep changing too, right? It's almost like universities will never go broke as long as they're providing a good education because people keep having children. So like, it's almost like this uneducated group keeps coming in to get educated and in four years they're gone. But you don't have to advertise to get more people coming in because there's just another 17-year-old out there who wants to go to college, right? Right, right. And also, the, I, I think the beauty of sort of aggregating talent at the you know, bottom of the pyramid is that you can always grow with them and go up the pyramid. Correct. Yeah, correct. No one's going down the pyramid. And if they do, there's no value there, right? And there aren't a ton of people doing it. But also, you know, how many people sit in a C-suite? You know, five. But how many people are actually out there cranking out stuff every day? 5,000. So the numbers are in your favor as well. Right. Yeah. And, and, and Michael, I mean, you live in Thailand, so you probably, you know, are, are very much familiar with, you know, the digital nomad yeah, uh, yeah. culture, right? Yeah. Yep. And, 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 you know, since we opened up our spaces in Bali, so we have two spaces in Bali, we're seeing, and this is very fascinating to me to observe, is we're seeing a very different type of person come to our spaces in Bali. So in Singapore, we have very thought out ideas. We have people of like, you know, very specific talent set, crypto people, etc. In Bali, you're getting a lot of folks who are sort of searching for the next thing in their life. Right. 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 They're in between and something. They're, they're looking for something. Yeah. They're looking for something. But a lot of these people are, you know, skilled people in their various different, um, you know, uh, uh, industries and they're looking for the next thing. And wow, what a great, uh, if we could have a platform to help these people find something they want to do through education, through right, networks, right. How, what a, what a, what, what an impactful uh, thing that can be, uh, is to help, you know, these folks find the next thing in their life whether it's right. a job, whether it's a new career, whether it's a new skill set. And so in the beginning, when I, when I was observing this in Bali, saying, well, you know, maybe this is not the right segment that we want to approach. But then I realized, like, from an impact perspective, I mean, you know, so many people in the world are in this situation where they're, they're trying to find their way in life. And, and, and they're very aspirational people. And if we can sort of create these nodes around the world that aggregates these folks, then I think it's a tremendous possibility because these folks have shown that they have taken action to find the next thing in their life. They're not right. sitting back home in Nebraska. Waiting. Waiting, right? And the fact that they have decided to go to the other side of the world to find something, I think is a very good starting point to a personality, which means they're taking action. Yeah, I agree. And look, I think this is actually the perfect way to end this conversation because I feel like we could go on on this forever. I learned so much this morning. I think you can tell actually from just the follow on questions that we've had. It's just I really believe in this model, but I don't want this to be the last time we talk. Like I actually want to keep following up on this because I want to understand. And I think actually you made a really good point about 
how Bali is different than Singapore, but the model works in both places, right? So I'll just say one more thing, and that is, you know, nobody wakes up in Nebraska and says, I'm just going to go to Singapore and find myself. It just doesn't happen, right? They go there for a purpose, maybe. But people do go to Bali to, like, try to figure stuff out. People come to Chiang Mai to try to figure stuff out. People go to Phuket to, like, there are so many places where this model works, but for different reasons. I think it's really cool. Anyway, look, dude, thank you so much for, like, taking so much time and doing this. And we got to do this again, yeah? Sure, sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, Let's talk again. Thanks, Michael.